Oh, cat, you have left us and will not return. You were like a child to us. How could we cease loving you? You, who were an instrument of protection, preventing harm, protecting us in our absence from beetle and rat. You flushed the mice from their hiding places, chasing them from their holes to the thresholds. Flocks of them would cross your path in the house, and you'd fight them without any instruments. So it was until you caused harm to our neighbors, though harm was not your intention. At first, you circled around the pool of ruin for fear of their malice. But one who circles around any pool will come to drink from it. Thinking of you, my heart trembled as you glided forward undeterred, entering the pigeon house, slowly and deliberately. But you were not slow in devouring the young, tossing the feathers all about for the bird's keepers to find while voraciously swallowing the flesh. Hi, I'm Alexa Sand. And I'm Ian McInnes. And this is Real Fantastic Beasts. Because we believe that learning about animals in history and literature and art helps us understand our place among our fellow creatures today. And Alexa, I love that story, but I want to know more about where it comes from. You know, it's, it seems so current in so many ways. Yes, well, for this episode about cats, I wanted to find something that really captured the nature of the cat and the nature of the human connection to the cat. So I should note that this this episode, in my mind at least, is in honor of my recently deceased cat, Sir Anansi Spiderington. And this is a poem about the grief we feel when we lose a feline companion. It was written probably in the ninth century by a poet named Abu Bakr ibn al-Alaf. And he was a court poet for the Abbasid Caliph named Al-Muta'az. And he wrote this poem probably shortly after the Caliph himself was assassinated, but also after his son, not the Caliph's son, uh, Al-Alaf's son, was murdered for his part in a political plot. So scholars of, of early Arabic poetry have discussed whether this is really about his cat or really about his son or really about his political patron. But I guess I would say it's probably about all three because it's something very real, right? You have this beloved house pet who is also an incredibly efficient killer, which is one of the reasons that people keep cats in the cat family that, that includes lions and tigers and leopards and whatnot. The domestic cat is really one of the most ruthless and efficient killers. So he loves this cat. This family loves this cat, partly because they keep the vermin out of the house. But there's a flip side to that. They also killed the neighbor's pigeons, which is, by the way, why my uh, recently departed cat was an indoor cat, because I love the wild birds who come to the feeders in the yard, and he would happily have eaten them. <laughs> Keeping the cat under control. Is this, I can't believe I'm asking you about Islamic court poetry, not your area of expertise, but not at all. Was, was this a time when, if the poet wanted to write about politics or about the death of his son, the poet would have been unable to do so? So that an occasion where they would have to use the the sort of metaphor or illusion to make that point, or is it just this is just a poetic technique in the period? Well, I think 
the answer is yes to both. I mean, in this case where the politically unstable climate of the court in Baghdad would have made it probably quite risky for the poet to directly suggest that he was criticizing the current regime, I guess. Or yeah, yes. So yes, there's some probably some some protection in metaphor. But I mean, if if it's easy enough to see through that in 2023, it was probably pretty easy to see through that at the time. This is part of a as I understand it, of a larger tradition of poetry that pays homage to to a lost loved one who could be a person, a child often, or um, a pet. There's another really great, somewhat later Arabic poem from the 11th century that is about uh, about a house cat um, and sort of celebrating her sweetness and, and the poet's love for his cat. But at the same time, he writes, so, you know, he tells us that he has this little cat and he puts henna on her foot pads, you know, those adorable little pink foot pads on a cat um, before he even puts it on his own newborn. So it's a form of uh, blessing on the child to put the henna on the child. But first he puts it on his cat um, and ties cowrie shells to her collar to like keep off the evil eye. So he really literally starts the poem by saying, I treat this cat better than I treat my own kids. You know, I love this cat that much. And I love watching her play. Um, and she's, it's so fun when she cuddles with me and I love to scratch her. I'm really summarizing a much more beautiful piece of poetry. That, and, you know, he even says, when I avoid her, she, she fawns on me. And we all know that, you know, the more you try to avoid your cat, the more your cat will seek you out. But then he describes her hunting a mouse and just how sort of vicious she is. And he concludes by saying, in this way, do the decrees of fate ruin a man and finish him with a cut to the aorta, just when amid the lively gathering, he takes up the cup of destiny from a server. So he's basically saying like, cat, cats are like fate. They're just sitting there waiting for you to relax. (laughs) (laughs) And then it's going to get you. So clearly this is a kind of figure in, in this poetic tradition over a span of, you know, 200 years. So cat behavior, right, seems to be unchanging, uh, relatively speaking, you know, cats, cats are doing the same kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. But it's really interesting that the, that the human reactions to those behaviors are are also so similar to reactions that we have today because culturally speaking we're looking at we're looking at cultures that are just so different from ours mm-hmm. and and yet the observations that they're making about about the cat seem so current right the things that they take delight in or that they notice about the behavior of the cat in a both admiring and but also you know a little satirical way you know the, the cat that follows right. you around the house. It is an interesting sort of point of contact, that love for cats. Yeah. And I mean, there there are quite a lot of, you know, sources from the medieval Islamic world suggesting that cats had a kind of special status um, oh. in terms of domestic or semi-domesticated animals that perhaps creates a sort of false um, impression that cats in the Middle Ages were just like cats today. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is like, since the Victorian era, and specifically since Queen Victoria sort of 
celebrated the domestic cat as a pet. Western culture has celebrated cats in a way that looks a lot like what we're seeing here in medieval Islam. But I want to say that at the same time that medieval Islam is celebrating the cat, you know, as we'll see in a minute, the medieval West and specifically medieval Christians are not celebrating the cat in the same way. So tell me more about the cat in the Islamic world then. Like what what is its privileged status? Well, interestingly, so cats are ritually clean in Islam, in Islamic law, unlike dogs, for example. In Islam, you can um, have a cat that lives in your house and, you know, shares your bed, for example. Um, it, maybe it licks your butter or it, it drinks from your water cup, say. That doesn't render that food or drink contaminated as it would if if a dog were to do the same thing. One interesting thing is that, and if you've ever been to, say, Istanbul or Cairo, you've seen cats in the mosques. And that's because they are ritually clean animals and they can't, I mean, you can't eat them, but a living cat walking around is not considered polluting. And there are reasons for this in Islamic tradition, going back to some hadith, some sayings about the prophet and his close associates and their relationships to cats, and also some sort of more folkloric tradition. So one story is that the prophet Muhammad himself had a favorite cat uh, named Mu'itza. And one day he woke up from his afternoon siesta and he needed to go pray. But the cat had fallen asleep on the sleeve of his prayer robe. And he didn't want to wake the cat up. So he just cut the sleeve off, put his prayer robe on and went to pray. I, I love that story. That sort of like <laughs> care for this animal. Another story about Mu'itza is that um, you know how cats, when you come in, sometimes will like stretch for you. They'll stretch their front legs out and they're... Yeah bum yeah. high in there. This cat did that in front of the prophet and he bent down and petted it on the head three times to praise it for praying, for prostrating itself in prayer. And supposedly that's why cats have seven lives. So there are all kinds of stories like this. Some of them are more canonical, I guess I would say, and some of them are more in the nature of unverified, not not hadith. There are also stories about important scholars. For example, there's a story about a a medieval grammarian, a guy named Ibn Babshad, who was sitting with some friends on the roof of a mosque in Cairo, eating, talking, talking grammar, I guess. Um, and a cat passed by and he gave her some morsels of his food and she took them and ran away. And then she came back and she came back and she came back. And finally, he became curious. So he followed her and found that she was taking these morsels of food to another cat, a blind cat. <laughs> who was sitting on the roof of a nearby house and um, basically taking care of this sister cat. And he was so moved by, you know, this this example of God taking care of this blind creature through the auspices of this other creature that he, um, he renounced all his worldly possessions and uh, lived in poverty. So that's, again, kind of a folktale, but it's associated with the cats of Cairo, who were specially protected in the mosques and in the gardens. So like actually the Sultan Baybars um, in the 13th century established these gardens for cats where they would be fed and, and, you know, there would be, you know, veterinary care available to them. He established an endowment so that the cats of Cairo, those basically stray cats of Cairo would be perpetually cared for. That's fascinating. 
that idea that idea of charity is is I know you know one of the fundamental parts of Islam. So the 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 charitable cat taking care of the blind cat I could see would be mm-hmm. pretty powerful as the as the praying cat would be. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there's always a little bit of humor in these stories too. Yes. Like, and I think it's very winsome, really. And it and it goes back to kind of a fundamental thing in Islam, which is a belief in the sacrality of life and also the sort of charge put upon human beings to care for animals and to treat them humanely. So the the humane treatment of all kinds of animals is is written into into Islamic law and it's part of the Quran and it's something in this day and age of a pretty vile Islamophobia in the West. I, I think there's a tendency to forget that in some ways there's a, a more ingrained kind of humane treatment of animals ethos in Islam than than most people are willing to acknowledge or see outside of outside of that community. And Christianity has a very poor record of humane treatment of animals. Oh, yes. I mean, absolutely, especially concerning cats in the Middle Ages. If we look at oh, no. <laughs> medieval European ideas about cats, they're, I mean, they're not universally terrible, and there's clearly a lot of ambiguity, but the sort of official church doctrinal line is not super appealing. And that's especially true in the period of the Middle Ages that I work on, which is the later Middle Ages. So... In the uh, late 12th century, this <clears throat> English cleric named Walter Mapp, well, he's actually Welsh, but this uh, he's at the court of Henry II, and he writes this book called De Nugis Curialium, and it's basically a gossip rag for the court of, of the king. Trinkets for the court is how that is usually translated from Latin. And he writes this story about cats, and in particular, black cats. So Walter Mapp is writing about the Cathars, who are a group of people who have been labeled by the Catholic Church as heretics for their sort of eccentric beliefs about the nature of Christ, about the nature of sin and redemption, and particularly about the priesthood, which is that they believe that priests don't have any authority and are basically useless leeches on society. You can see I can why. See why. Considered... I, I can see why. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, I mean, and, and on a side note, Qatars are actually the reason I became a medievalist. I read this very, very famous book um, by the French historian Emmanuel Leroy Laudry called uh, Montaigu, The Promised Land of Error, which is a book based on the court records of interrogations of Qatar heretics in the south of France in the 12th century. So, sorry, the 13th century, early 13th century. Anyhow, Walter Mapp, writing in 1180 or roundabout, um, has plenty to say about Qatars. And, and this is one of the stories that he tells us. He says, many of those who have repented and returned to the true faith tell how at the first watch of the night with their doors, entrances, and windows closed, the families sit in silence, each in their synagogue, and wait. And in the middle of them comes, hanging by a rope, a black cat of great size. As soon as they see this cat, the lights are turned out. 
They do not sing or recite hymns in a distinct way, but they mutter them with their teeth closed and they feel in the dark towards where they saw their Lord, the cat. And when they find it, they kiss it. The more humbly depending on their folly, some on the paws, some under the tail, and some on the genitals. And as if they have in this way received a license for passion, each one takes the nearest man or woman and they join themselves with the other for as long as they choose to draw out their game. You have all the elements there of a great heresy, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> First of all, you've got the like sitting in the dark. Um, second of all, you have a black cat lowered by a rope from the ceiling. I don't know who's doing the lowering, but that's not included. Um, and, and this space in which this is happening is called a synagogue, which of course brings the Jews into the mix, right? So you got to vilify the Jews a little bit here. And then um, they don't say their prayers properly. And then of course there's the kissing the animal on all the naughty and dirty bits, basically. <laughs> follow, followed by an orgy. Oh yeah. You got to follow it up yeah. with an orgy. Um, needless to say, the testimony collected by the Dominican inquisitors in the south of France in the early 13th century does not, the, these are not the things that the Cathars actually did. This is, this is a story. This is a sort of boogeyman story. Yeah. Lay, lay on as much as you can, but that the place of the cat in the story suggests that the cat already had negative connotations because there yeah, is absolutely. being you know, if you're black going cats. To come- Exactly. If you're going to come up with a completely outrageous set of behaviors, a black cat has to be in there. And it's really interesting because about 50 years later, there was this inquisitor, Conrad of Marburg, who was sent out to Germany by the Pope to sort of figure out what kinds of heretical activities were going on there. And he definitely encountered real heterodox practices within religious communities there. So we can call those people heretics, or we can call them heterodox practitioners. (laughs) Um, So he arrested them because that's what you did. And then um, by that time, torture was considered a fairly standard legal procedure. So he extracted evidence from some of these so-called heretics under, under duress. And lo and behold, they told him an almost identical story. Although in the place of the cat, there could also be like a toad or a goose or a frog. And then there's a statue of a black cat in this testimony that he collected. It sounds like they're, they're being led into these confessions. Right. And, and what it suggests to me is that there's a story, this idea of what heretics do. And when you're under duress being asked, what do you heretics do? And if, if you tell me what you heretics do, I'll you know let you off with a lighter punishment, whatever it might be. Or if you recant you know, and tell us all the dirty secrets, you go right to the story that you have, which, you know, is the same story that Walter Mapp had, basically. Involving cats or toads or insert, you know, already constituted as unclean, dangerous, problematic creature here. So how did that, how did cats become so problematic by the uh, early 13th century? It's really hard to say. I mean, part of it probably has to do with, as you observed before, like cat behavior. If you look at the bestiary tradition, cats are not moralized. They're one of the few animals whose behaviors and and characteristics aren't really ascribed theological meaning. 
the cat is just a mouse catcher because it is the enemy of mice. The The name is sort of derived from a false etymology or a folk etymology in Isidore of Seville about catching. Catas from cat, from captura. It, it says it can see in the dark. And, you know, cats were sacred animals in pre-Christian antiquity, in, in um, Egypt and yeah. in Greece. They had a certain... So who knows? Maybe there's some association of cats with paganism, but you don't find it in the early sources. So it really seems to arise in the 12th century that you start getting these sort of stories about cats. I don't really have an answer. I know that uh, Gregory the Ninth, who was Pope at the time that Conrad of Marburg was, you know, reporting on these activities of these heretics in Germany, he felt that it was important to warn people that cats could be indicative of, you know, things going on that shouldn't be going on. So he issued a papal bull called Vox in Rama, which, you know, condemned these kinds of heresies. Now, that bull is often linked in the sort of popular literature to this story about mass cat killings, where people just suddenly went crazy and started killing all the cats. There isn't a lot of evidence that that really happened on a large scale. There are a few sort of isolated cases, mostly quite a bit later in your period. (laughs) But um, the medieval evidence for like mass cat killing in Europe seems to be associated less with like some kind of conception of the cat as an evil, bad animal and more with the fact that cats have really nice fur. Cat fur was a sort of cheaper alternative to other luxury furs. So there's some evidence from a a site in Cambridge, England from the 13th century, and then some much earlier evidence from a site called El Bordellet in Spain um, from the 10th century. And there's some research on early medieval cat fur trade, particularly in Northern Europe and England. Um, huh. Well, I, yeah. you know, I say, oh no, but it's also, oh no, for all the animals that were usually harvested for fur in the, exactly. in the period as yeah. well. Um, what and like, did they eat the meat of the cats that they butchered for fur? I don't know. I guess there are some recipes. I couldn't find any, but I found several sources that said, oh, yeah, there are recipes for how to cook cat. But there are also a lot of recipes from the Middle Ages that aren't really recipes. You know, you should keep that in mind. Like, there's a lot of sort of parody recipes and shock the neighbors kind of recipes that probably were never actually meant to be cooked. Meant to be cooked at all. Hmm. Yeah. Is there any medieval authentication of this uh, kind of connection between the, the Virgin Mary and cats? Because that would be a that's a, that would be a countering positive association. I mean, the cats Vir- crop up in a lot of pictures of the Virgin Mary. Oh yeah, cute little fuzzy kitties. Or the you know, there's the legend that it, you know when Jesus was born, uh, you know, a cat also had its kittens. So then there you know, there's some special connection there. Or the idea that the tabby cat markings. There's a, and I don't know how old this, this legend is, but the, the tabby cat, if you look at it at the front, there's an M, like there's always a dark uh, lines that make an M on the forehead, which mm-hmm. is the legend goes that, that the cat had some special relationship with Mary, maybe helping to calm down baby Jesus or whatever it might be. And that she blessed the cat and put the, the, the M on the forehead of the cat forever. Huh. I don't know that that's a medieval thing. I, I mean, I didn't come across it. And when you say there are a lot of paintings with cats in the context of the Virgin and Child, I would guess that those are later. I mean, okay. I, I can't think of a ton of representations of 
medieval virgins with cats. I might be just, I, I mean, I, I can think of a lot of representations in medieval manuscripts of cats. One of my favorite manuscripts for cats is the Psalter Hours of Jean Devreux, who was- Oh, I love that book. Yeah, it's a beautiful, very tiny book of hours. It's in the Cloisters collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. You can go on their website and see all the pages. So uh, can like explain to our audience who Jean Devreux is and what a book of hours is, because it's this tiny little gorgeous volume that yeah. I think is, is, is uh, of a kind of book that we, do, we don't have anymore. Yeah, so Jean was a very young girl when she was recruited, I suppose you could say, to marry the king of France or the heir to the throne, I guess. Um, she, you know, was 14 years old, I think. And this little prayer book that was made for her probably at the time of her marriage, although, you know, there's unfortunately they didn't write like in the inside the front cover hey john here's a prayer book for you but um you know she's depicted in the book it's little it's like the size of a pack of cards or maybe even a little smaller anyhow this book has the sort of prayers that a devout christian woman would be expected to say at different times of the day and it has sort of a different selections of these prayers that she could choose according to the time of year or what was going on in her life there are pictures throughout this book some of them are a whole page that depicts say a scene from the life of Jesus and some of them are inside these little tiny initials these are drawings that are less than centimeter high. And it'll show, for example, Jean herself sitting with her book open and, and praying. And there's Something cats. I've, and there are cats. There are <laughs> cats in the margins. So in the margins of this book and like between the lines of text are these minuscule, very, very finely drawn sort of hijinks, all kinds of animals. But one of my favorite is that, favorite sort of features in the book is that there's a little cat that hunts a mouse through the text. And you do see this in other medieval manuscripts, some very famous ones. For example, the Book of Kells has right on the page with the um, initials of Jesus, the Cairo iota in Greek, there's a little tiny scene of some cats hunting mice, but they have other mice or rats kind of hunting them. So the cat hunting the mouse is a metaphor that gets used pretty frequently in medieval writing, but it changes. It can it can mean like the soul sort of hunting down and eliminating sin, but it can also mean the devil preying on the soul, playing with the soul and tempting it into sin. I would say that latter explanation is more common. Huh. So didn't Augustine say that the the birth of Christ was the mousetrap to catch the devil in? Isn't that isn't that a Augustine saying? So that, that would make yeah. the devil into the mouse or the rat. Yes, yes. That that is in the Augustinian tradition. And of course there's a very famous example of that in an uh, a painting of the early 15th century, also in the cloisters, <laughs> that that depicts sort of Joseph on one side, Joseph, the carpenter, father of Jesus, making a mouse trap. And, and I mean, cats were part of everyday life in Christian Europe, just as they were in the Islamic world, because you needed them to keep vermin down. I mean, the relationship between cats and human beings goes back 
a really, really long way, you know, and it goes back to basically the time when people stopped being nomads and started storing food and living in houses and needing an animal who could efficiently eliminate vermin. So cats as sort of functional working animals were were part of everyday life. When I say that the Christian attitude towards cats was negative, I don't mean that they they didn't see their utility. Too. <laughs> um, I think the old the oldest cat door in the you know existing cat door in the world is in a a door to a church in in England, uh, because the, the cats would keep the vermin away, particularly from the commune wafers, the you know holy objects. They don't want them chewing the you know the vestments and things like that. Anything that was stored in there, so. right? And cats are so important in monasteries for that reason, because not only do they protect the Eucharistic host and you know the vestments, but also the books in the library and you know, vermin love to eat parchment books because they, you know, are made of skin. So they have a certain nutritive value. And even paper books are subject to the depredations of exactly the kinds of pests that cats love to catch and kill. And so actually one of my favorite sort of medieval manuscript things, this this was discovered some years ago now, in, uh, um, I think, a library in Dubrovnik by this guy, Amir Solopovich. Um, maybe it was about 2013, I think. He discovered the paw prints of a cat who had like clearly walked through an ink pot or walked across an ink pad and then like walked across an open manuscript that was like drying on the, the scribe's workbench. And the, the scribe actually wrote a complaint saying like, darn it. <laughs> this damn cat basically and there's another example of this from a a a manuscript in um, england from the 14th century that has like a big pee stain on it and the scribe wrote a curse on the cat who had peed on his manuscript overnight so clearly they were keeping cats in scriptoria and libraries to control pests but sometimes you know the cats themselves became pests and monks and scribes love cats. You know, that's it's a it's a really interesting. I've mentioned um, the Ankrin Visa before the the rule for for female anchresses. One of the one of the things that's in there says like you you can't keep pets in your cell. Don't keep pets in your cell um, except for a cat. <laughs> You're allowed a cat. Also, Albertus Magnus, you know, this great uh, Dominican theologian, has all kinds of advice in his book on animals, on taking care of your pet cat. Some of it I wouldn't counsel. I mean, some of it's very nice. Like, you should pet your cat very lightly, not hard, like you pet a dog. But also, he says you should clip its ears because that prevents ear infections. And it's true that cats do get a lot of ear infections, don't they? But I don't think that cutting their ears off is going to... Yeah, that the cutting. I'll come back to that cutting the ears off from that from Magnus because it's it's represented differently in in uh, Renaissance texts. But the presence of cats in households, I have this. I have a. Th- I've never heard anyone uh, voice this theory, but I have a theory that they influence furniture design hmm. because you know we we get mice in our our house and we have cats. You know, occasionally catch a mouse, and the problem is the cat catches the mouse and then the cat brings the mouse inside, perhaps, or brings it out. And then they let it go because they're, you know, they're a cat and it takes them a while to like, kill the mouse. And the mouse promptly disappears into a place that the cat can't go, including many locations in our house that are, you know, under the couches 
mm-hmm. you know, in under the cupboards and things like that. But if you look at furniture designs from the from the Middle Ages right through the the Renaissance, almost everything is is quite a bit up off the ground, and it's it's almost always raised to cat, you know, to a height that would allow a cat to go under it. <laughs> so people have said, oh, you know, they're raising they're raising things for vermin, you know, but a, a mouse can climb a the leg of a chair or anything, right? That's not the, like a leg is not going to keep a mouse from going anywhere it wants, but it will make sure that if there's a cat in the house, that mouse has nowhere to go. The, mm. the cat will always be able to catch the mouse no matter what. So I, my theory is that the, all the raised furniture really is to give the cat access so that the mice can be killed. It's cat adapted design. Exactly. It's all about the cats. So before we turn to the, um, to the Renaissance cat, I just want to throw one more thing out there. And that is this special relationship between monks, nuns, clerics, scribes, and cats that seems to run sort of counter to this idea of the evil cat. Like cats are the best friends of people who make books and who read. Um, and I think that's, you know, still something you you see today. Like lots of bookshops have a cat, right? Um, and so there's this wonderful poem it was written um, at Reichenau, the monastery of Reichenau in Switzerland, by a monk who came from the British Isles. So he wrote in Irish, in, and this was in the ninth century. And the, the poem, and I'm, I'm going to read from the translation by Seamus Haney, the poem is about a cat and a scribe. And the scribe starts by telling us the cat's name, which is Pangur Ban, means white cat, basically. Um, (laughs) Pankor Ban and I at work, adepts equals cat and clerk. His whole instinct is to hunt mine to free the meaning pent. So he basically is comparing himself in this poem to his cat. And he says, my cat is perfectly adapted to his job, which is to hunt mice. And he's really good at it. And he and it makes him happy. Likewise, I'm really good at, and my whole purpose is to read sacred text and to extract meaning that is like locked up in the sacred text. And so I'm hunting meaning just like the cat is hunting mice. And he goes on for several verses to talk about how he loves being alone in his cell, basically with his cat, and that they're both sort of perfectly in their environment, perfectly suited to their tasks. Maybe the cat's a little bit better at his job. So there's this sort of element of humor. But ultimately, they're not in competition with each other. They both are perfectly in sync. And that idea of, you know, my work and my cat's work are different, but parallel and and sort of perfectly matched up. it's, It's a great poem. It's a very famous poem. Um, you can look it up anywhere on the internet and see 17 different translations. But I love that it's just this sort of going back to that idea of the the payon to the the compatibility of cat kind and human kind and human kind, particularly the scribe or the monk or the scholar or the scholar, which is what happens in the in the early modern period is that that association with monks becomes an association with scholars and anyone who's leading the contemplative life. Which I I suppose there's something practical about that because if you've ever had a cat, they certainly like it when you stand still and read books and work on a computer or whatever it might be. They're very happy to become involved with that. So I guess they're if they're inside a house, they're 
naturally interested in in the contemplative people in the household (laughs) for whatever reason that might be. But that's certainly true. And that association kind of gives rise to some of the like more interesting statements we have about cats in the early modern period. Um, there's a French essay writer, Montaigne, who's famous for kind of a skeptical approach to, to problems. You know, he'll, he'll write about issues and always from a different perspective. And he has a long essay in, in which he says a whole bunch of things. But one of the things is, is that he he sort of contemplates the relationship between humans and animals. And at one point he, he's, he's talking about like, how do we don't understand what animals want or, or what they do. And, you know, we, we sometimes believe it's about us when it's not about us. And he says, when I play with my cat, who can say that it is not she amusing herself with me more than I with her. So first of all, here he is the scholar, of course, playing with his cat which goes right back to the early Middle Ages with these kind of contemplative jobs. But then using the cat as, as you know, as a kind of a, an opportunity to think about the mind of the animal and, mm-hmm. and the, the way that animals ha- may have, have their own desires that we don't understand and can't necessarily evaluate or assign, which I think is kind of interesting. So there's that, the, you know, the, the ambiguity about the cat that you mentioned in the, in the Middle Ages, the good cat, bad cat, if you will. It, I mean, it just gets much worse in the early modern period. And many of the most horrifying kind of mistreatments of cats that we have historically certainly happen in the 15th, 16th, 17th century. Just, you know, like the cat murders, the, the fact that people fa- apparently found pleasure in burning cats and on festivals. And this was kind of a regular practice. All things that are pretty pretty horrifying in ways that are that go beyond even what we've said in maybe about uh you know bear baiting i think there's just some really dreadful dreadful examples of that uh kind of mistreatment of cats all based in the negative associations with cats right there it's permitted to do these things to cats because they're associated with bad things so often so you have that a lot of that negative stuff happening as well but then you know there's clearly plenty of cat lovers and an interest in cats as the necessary opponent to mice and rats who are clearly a worse enemy if if you will and the constant presence of cats right they're going to be everywhere for those reasons i think probably the association that we like the negative association that we most historically associates with cats is the witch's cat and the connection of cats and witches and belief in witches and witch hunting all kind of went really crazy in the latter middle ages and through the early modern period so if you think of the kind of the the witch and the witch's cat or the witch's familiar, which would be any animal that's associated with a, a witch would be a familiar, but cats were a, a favorite one uh, that got associated with, with witches. That's all kind of something that's that's true in the, in the early modern period. I guess I would, as a corollary to witches, I would say in the Middle Ages, that is, you know, prior to late 15th century, people were less concerned about witches and more concerned about heretics. You really have to understand the sort of witchcraft hysteria of the 16th century as tied into the Protestant Reformation and to the replication of things that have been sort of associated with heretics in the Middle Ages into the Protestant setting where they become associated with, with witches who are essentially devil worshippers, I guess which is a kind of heretic. Yes. And you kind of have a, like a, a separate, yeah, a separation of that particular issue, which may have its origins in heresy and certainly religious origins, but becomes a kind of a self-contained 
So the natural history, I think, reflects this this division. And if you read, you know, my favorite Topsel, right, who like has a has a big entry on cats, he begins by you know talking about how important the cat was in the classical world, and you know, and and how necessary cats are. Um, he repeats the the business about uh, from Albertus Magnus about cutting the ears of cats as a solution to keeping them in the house. He says if you're you know Magnus says that if you're afraid your cats are going to go out and kill birds, you cut their ears because they hate getting water in their ears. And so if it's raining, they just won't go outside. Cutting the ears off a cat sounds pretty horrifying. I think it's probably worse to declaw cats, as many people do these days. And we certainly have a habit of cutting tails and ears off of, of pet animals, mostly dogs, I guess, rather than cats. But So he mentions that, but he's, uh, he also talks about um, not catnip, but valerian, which is an, another plant that apparently is similar to catnip. Cats love it. And Topsil says, you know, I've got my valerian in my garden and, you know, like you can't keep the cats away. And I surrounded it with thorns and my cats kept getting at it. So you think, oh, Topsil, you know, he's a cat lover. He owns cats. He has a lot of great things to say about cats. He talks about playing with cats and how much people love cats. And then suddenly partway through, he starts talking about just how toxic cats are. Toxic. Exactly. They are poisonous in so many ways. So he begins with the idea that their eyes emit light at night, right? Is they see well at night. And I think it's also, you know, if you shine a light on a cat's eye, they're, the reflective qualities of their eyes in the dark are really, and they look like they're glowing. Um, but but the, uh, the, the light that they emit with their gaze, he says, is dangerous, right? That their gaze is so intent and, and virulent that you, gotta, you sort of have to watch out for that. So the, the glare of a cat is problematic. Topsil, you know, says that you, you can't eat cats, that cat flesh is is dangerous. And in particular, the brain is super toxic. Well, that at least is some some point of consensus between Islam, Judaism, and Christianity at this point, because they all agree that you don't eat cats. Cats are not halal, they're not kosher, and they're also just clearly not really food, although there's you know, those cat recipes I mentioned. Not not to be eaten, <laughs> right? But for Topsil, it's specifically because they're poisonous, right? You know, like it's it's not unclean, but like actually literally uh, dangerous. And then he says, well, you know, cats spend all their time eating mice and rats and mice and rats eat a lot of poison. So the cats are ingesting poison, which means cat breath is poisonous. <laughs> Yes, especially if they've been eating tuna fish. Exactly. Stay away from stay away from cat breath. And people who spend a lot of time with cats are inevitably going to come down with various ailment, ailments. That that it's just a really bad thing to be too clo- up to close to the cats because it's you know you're going to suffer from it in in the long run. Mm-hmm. So I think like that's that's his attempt in a way to kind of reflect the negative you know, to the negativity about the, the cat in other sort of cultural terms for Topsil becomes, you know, he has to explain why cats are bad, like what, why cats are these dangerous creatures. And this isn't a, a passage that says absolutely nothing about cats and witches or anything like that. I mean, it's it's pretty straightforward natural history by a guy who pl- clearly lives with cats and has plenty of observations about the animals to, you know, mm-hmm. to give us that we would say like, that just sounds like a Renaissance person talking about an animal that I know very well except for the toxic breath and the, and the, the, the toxic gaze and the, and, the, and the brain that is deadly to, to anybody who eats it. Uh, I, I will notice that uh, people talk a lot about, about, about the fear of cats, which is 
there is such a thing as cat phobia or ilurophobia that still exists. People are afraid of cats, but it's not it's not it's not as common as it was in the early modern period. So common that it's one of the common phobias that people mention. So if they talk about how people are irrationally afraid of something, they'll often say like like you know like cats, right? Whereas we would probably say snakes. I think is the most common kind of phobia. There is nothing irrational about a fear of snakes. And I say this as someone who lives in the Intermountain West. And let me tell you, when I come across rattlesnakes on the trail, the fear response is visceral, (laughs) but completely rational because those snakes can kill you. We have to separate rational trepidation for a dangerous (laughs) animal from phobia, right? Yes. Uh, and yes, and and uh, I mean you you know you can be afraid of cats as well. Oh, he mentions cat bites as being toxic, right? They have a poison. They have a literally a poisonous bite. Venomous. I mean, having been bitten by a cat, I can tell you it got pretty infected and gross. And if I didn't have modern germ theory to explain that, I might think it was poison. Exactly. And cats. Well, there's cat scratch disease. I mean, you know, yes, they do. <laughs> We know that they can cause infection a lot, that they are problematic. And we also know about things like allergies to, you know, cats, which are, you know, fairly common and can be pretty disabilitating in in minor ways, or at least make the, you know, mimic the appearance of various kinds of illnesses, right? The the snuffling, difficulty, you know, congestion, difficulty breathing, uh, all those Mm -hmm. kinds of things would make it look like, wow, the cats are really, they're really dangerous creatures um, to keep around. So you could see how... You, you can get there. But again, the way that that's being played clearly, you know, has this, uh, these other associations. Yeah. Uh, and we know, by the way, that phobias, I don't know about your totally legitimate and rational fear of rattlesnakes, but that phobias can be triggered by massive amounts of negative information about something. So mm-hmm. culturally speaking, we can create phobias in people. So the prevalence of cat phobia in the early modern period is mm-hmm. evidence that they were just getting a lot of negative information about cats all the time. But people did love their cats. In fact, there's, you know, the original cat lady from 1695. This is a wealthy woman who left all her money to her cats. <laughs> 1800 pounds, you know, in her will left to the, you know, care and upkeep of of her cats. And was that then a cat garden? <laughs> a permanent place for the cats of wherever she lived london wherever she lived it i don't think it became that i don't i i don't know what the 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 final statement was it's always it's held up as a legal curiosity in a way but Mm -hmm. a legal curiosity that that demonstrates that although there's the negative information there's also an awful lot of cat ownership and cat loving um Mm -hmm. happening in in the period uh so i have i'll give you a, a, a story from uh about Kind of witches and cats, and and the uh, sort of the, some of the associations with cats from the period. And this is from a uh, a story called "Beware of the Cat," which is actually a kind of a, a religious satire, but it has all these stories about cats in there. And the one that leads the the story line, so the stories are told about cats, and then characters within the story comment upon those cat stories, right? So they'll ask questions or say, "I don't believe this." And there's a great story about this Irish guy named Patrick, of course. And he and his servant were out raiding and they, they went to the neighbors and they they stole a cow and a sheep. And they're running away. They're going back to <laughs> their back to home and they're they're being pursued. So they hide in a church with the cow and the sheep. And they decide they're hungry, so they're gonna cook the sheep up. 
because they figure at least they'll eat some of the evidence anyway, right? And they take the cow back home. <laughs> so they cook the sheep in the church. I don't know how this happens. And as they're eating it, a cat shows up and it jumps up next to Patrick and says, can I have some of that sheep? And Patrick says, wow, a talking cat, and gives the cat, the cat some meat from the sheep. Cat eats the meat and then he wants more. So he gives it more and he gives it more. And pretty soon this cat has eaten the whole sheep. And let me and- guess, this cat is not taking the little pieces of mutton and sharing them with its blind friend. No, no. This cat is just <laughs> eating and eating and eating and asking for more and asking for more. So they, you know, like eats this whole sheep. They wants more. So they start to get, I don't know why this didn't happen earlier, but they start to get a little nervous about this. They think like maybe this, this cat is like, you know, like maybe it's the devil in disguise. We don't know what it is. So they're like, we better cook the cow, right? This, this cat just wants more. So like, we'll, we'll give it the, like, we'll start in on the cow. Everything will be fine. At a certain point, the cat has eaten three quarters of the cow and it's calling for the fourth quarter. And at that point, they realize we're out of animals to feed this cat. It's going to keep eating. It's going to, it's going to want to eat us next. Mm-hmm. So they, 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 they give the cat the, the, like the last bit of the cow. And while it's looking at the, you know, and working on that bit of cow, they sneak out the back and they ride away at top speed, like away from the scary cat. So they're riding and they're riding and riding. It's pitch dark outside, right? Cloudy. Um, and they're riding along. The moon comes out from behind the cloud and the servant looks over and he sees on the back of Patrick's horse is the cat. Riding along this is with him. like this is as good as any horror movie I've seen recently. I know, right? Um, and he takes his spear out and he kills the cat. So they think everything's fine, but they're immediately set upon by a horde of cats from which they narrowly escape. Patrick gets home, he's all relieved. He starts telling the story to his wife, right? It's oh, like, here's no. what happened. Can you believe this? And their house cat suddenly stands up and says, Have you killed Grimalkin? And he jumps on Patrick and chokes him to death before anyone can do anything about it. It's Grimalkin. <laughs> it's, yeah. Grimalkin. Yes, a, a good cat name. A, a traditional cat name, by the way, I have to say. Why? Uh, so, I, I have no idea. I've always wondered about that. Yeah, Grimalkin, traditional cat name. Uh, so that's the story. And then in Beware the Cat, the story is told. And the auditor, you know, hearing the story says like, ah, I don't think it was a cat. I think it was a witch. Right. Because witches often take the form of cats. And, and there's, you know, like that's why there's this common proverb that a cat has nine lives, which is to say a witch can take the form of a cat nine times. But then the auditor says, but and like how, you know, like how if that's true, if it's a witch, how can the large body of a woman be compressed into the form of a cat? Right. You start with a witch. How could she turn herself into a cat? It's smaller. Like, where does the body go? And the, and the other uh, listener says, like, oh, well, OK. Witches take the shape of cats. They don't actually put their body into that. They either cast a spell so everyone thinks they're a cat, so that you know it's an illusion, or uh, they are possessing a cat. You know, so they're like sending their soul into the body of the cat, and then they can act in the form of a cat. So it's it's a story that gives you both both that kind of like they're horror creatures, right? Like cats are the stuff of horror, and uh, I guess you know, their appetite. <laughs> kind of you know, like a, a part of that story but also the idea that, that not only are cats and witches associated but like they're interchangeable witches were often thought of as being able to turn themselves into cats so that anytime mm-hmm. a cat appears you could think that's probably a witch or it could be a witch mm-hmm. it's not just a witch is familiar but it's actually the witch herself was there a particular 
area or region of Europe where this sort of cat phobia and association of cats and witches was more pronounced or was it sort of generalized? It's it's generalized. I think it, it, it occurs to the degree to which witches themselves were being uh, persecuted, which mm-hmm. is to say across all of Europe, although the some of the largest, in terms of numbers, the, the, the cases in which large numbers of people were accused of witchcraft, large numbers of people um, don't occur in England. They occur um, in, you know, places in Germany um, and in France. And so, Scotland, right? Uh, and yeah, and in Scotland. But, but it is, you know, like, so it's not, it's not a case, the, the cats aren't really separate from the witches, right? They're, they mm-hmm. are being persecuted to the extent that witches are being persecuted because they're seen as, as interchangeable which is the reason you could. I just kind of want to ask you whether in your reading you came across any references to the relationship between cat phobia, cat killings, and the plague. Because one of the things that I found really interesting was how many sort of popular sources wanted to associate the outbreak of the bubonic plague in 1348 with the with the Vox and Rama papal bull a hundred years earlier, which they perceived, which these popular sources perceive as sort of like authorizing cat killings. I've already sort of dismissed the idea that there were these massive cat massacres in the 13th century or even the 14th century, but there is some evidence for massive cat massacres in the early modern period and and traditions, as you mentioned, like associated with festivals. It, are there as many people sort of perpetuating this myth of cat killings sparking outbreaks of the plague? Because as we discussed when we talked about rats and mice, the plague doesn't need rats and mice. It, it's perfectly happy to pass from person to person, too. I, I have not encountered any case in which the plague was specifically connected with cats. But but cats themselves are bad news. They cause illness. and, <laughs> the, and Apparently they're poisonous. Yeah. And as witches familiars, so when a witch has the, you know, the, the cat as a familiar, it's often articulated as a, a kind of a, a tool which aids the witch in doing ill to other people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the witch will get a, a possession belonging to the person that, that she wants to torment, and she will mm-hmm. stroke her cat with the item. And then, you know, and then it like that, then it becomes a way of getting back at the person. It doesn't turn into a, you know, that until it somehow makes contact with that. And of course, the cat as a familiar is frequently characterized as a, as the, the way that the devil is communicating with the, with the witch. So that the cat is the agent of the devil or somehow representation of it, channel of communication. So I'm in, in a way, you know, it would not be surprising at all if there was a connection. It's just that I've not. I have not seen that at all. Is there some point, you know, prior to Queen Victoria at which the cat's status changes? I, I haven't seen any any lessening of the cat phobia mm. in in my in my period. So mm. I would suspect that it is that it doesn't really abate until the late 18th century. Mm. I'm gonna guess. Interesting. But I haven't I haven't looked at I haven't looked to see like how far does it go or or like or when does it change. Uh, but, you know, I was thinking about this, the ambivalence about cats, and I, it is true that we no longer expect entertainment from uh, the torture of cats as a regular cultural practice, but I think people often ha- still have a kind of a divided vision about uh, there is a lot of cat hating as well as cat loving. 
out there. Mm-hmm. Although no, it is definitely, it, yeah. definitely true. And people like to divide people into like, there's cat, as cat my lovers, anthropology professor used to say, there's two kinds of people, people who think that there are two kinds of people and people who don't. Um, but in the camp of the people who are the two kinds of people, there's a lot of talk about cat people and dog people, which I've always found interesting because I like both species and I, you know, don't have a strong preference one way or the other, other than like circumstantially, it's more convenient to have a cat or somebody who travels regularly, you know, than a dog. But, but I found actually, you know, sort of corollary to the research I was doing about the religious differences in the middle ages about the perception of animals, a lot of discussions in the sort of popular sphere of I don't want to call it internet theology, but like looking at like popular Jewish websites, for example, asking the question, are dogs or cats more Jewish? Are Jews more dogs or cat people? And um, really interestingly, there are some medieval manuscripts that seem to ask that question too. Some Haggadot from the 13th, 14th century in which um, people have animal heads and sometimes they're cats. Sometimes they're birds. It it doesn't seem to be hardwired. But this whole sort of question of like, are there cultural types that are cat types and cultural types that are dog types? You know, I saw one site that talked about how Democrats are cat people and Republicans are dog people. And I think there's also a kind of gender issue in there that it's like more effeminate to like cats and more masculine to like dogs. And so there's a whole sort of semiotics of cats and dogs. Maybe that's outside the scope of this podcast, but I certainly think that we see some of the roots of that in this medieval and early modern material. I mean, witches could be ma- male, but they were most generally female. Yes. And, and cats you, you, became associated. And you did say like the original cat lady, you know? <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. We have our cultural stereotypes and they they go back to this period. I, I mean, I suppose it's natural to think you've got the two domesticated animals that are most often, you know, companion animals, it's natural for people to try to line them up against all sorts of binary oppositions. Um, but mm-hmm. but it does it does go way back. So the cat itself becomes a term for a woman, as so mm-hmm. many animal terms get turned in that way. But it is one of those animal words that gets associated with women. And I don't know how far back, how far back it goes, but it's certainly in the early modern period. Mm-hmm. So they are, they are feminized creatures. Yeah. And that association with the Virgin Mary that you mentioned is really interesting too. Yeah. Um, so I, like, I think the, those, like the, the opportunities for those kinds of uh, those binary oppositions are there. Although I have, I have never encountered any early modern person in England making the dog person, cat person argument. Yeah. And uh, you don't see that in the middle ages either. I mean, it seems to me like it's more like monastic person <laughs> right you know because it's in the anchored rule it's in the um it's in pangraban it's in you know all of these different sort of sources associated with monastic environments it's you know these are people who have forsworn other kinds of relationships and you know maybe a close intimate relationship with a cat is something that's acceptable in that in that yeah. setting so it's not so much gendered as you know what your function in life is and the constraints imposed upon you by that function. I guess 
the what the closest you get will be a writer like Topsil will say, cats won't leave the house, unlike dogs that will go out with their masters. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So like that's the, you know, like the, the cat is being contrasted with the dog, which means that cats are un- become associated with staying at home and with a kind of like passivity, whereas dogs are associated with like leaving the home and action. And so you can see how that becomes mm-hmm. connected with gender as well, mm-hmm. because, you know, men were the ones who were associated with action and with, and with leaving the domestic sphere and the cats are bound to the domestic sphere and not creatures of action. Should oh, one, one some? more thing. I'll, I'll leave you one more little uh, piece of evidence about that. So the, the story I gave, I met, I should have um, said this then maybe I'll move it back, but the, the way that the cats are the, the, you know, the, the language of cats or the idea that cats would talk is actually really common. And I think it's, for the early moderns, it's connected with the vocaliza- the variety of vocalizations that cats have. They can make so many different sounds that they thought that of all the animals, the, the ones that are closest to language would be maybe a parrot, because that's the imitative thing. But if there's an animal that has its own original language that we cannot understand, it would be the cat. Mm. Uh, and their phobia indicates that cats are always in communication with each other, that there's like a network out there. There's, you know, like... Uh, you don't know what the cats are saying to each other, but they are all talking to each other and you should be careful what you say in front of a cat. Huh. Interesting. Because also in the Middle Ages, at least, it seemed like cats are associated with music making, singing oh. and playing instruments. You see them in medieval manuscript illuminations, playing drums or playing an organ. And there are some literary sources as well that talk about their singing ability. Cats and voice. Kind of an interesting thing. I mean, and, and there's some indication that, again, we're talking about animal abuse here, but that like cats would be carried in certain kinds of um, parades as part of the Chiarivari and squeezed or poked so that they would howl as part of the sort of inversion of pleasant music. Cats as instruments. Yeah, there was definitely a kind of like association of cats with music. All right. That's all we have time for today. Great. Well, I look forward to our next conversation. Yes. We're not going to tell you what that is yet. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'm going to stop the recording right now. If you have questions or comments or suggestions about future episodes, we would love to hear from you. Just go to realfantasticbeasts.com and you will find lots of ways to join the conversation. 